The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. All right, here's the, here's the latest across the Bloomberg terminal. Musk says no one wants top job, but some people have piped up. I mean, it just gets crazier by the day. He's got a you know, a survey out there, Critty, saying, you know, if you want me to step down, I'll step down. And well, 58% of the respondents says, yeah, you should step down. So that's news. Then my question is, who wants the job? So we come back to the story because this story just keeps giving. Mandeep Singh, Senior Technology Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, and Dan Ives, Senior Equity Analyst at Wedbush Securities, join us here. Uh, Dan, I hate to kind of keep bringing this up because, again, but you know, you've been one of the, the biggest supporters of this name, of electric vehicles, really educating investors over the last you know five six seven years about the ev market the potential the upside here but the fundamental call is being overwhelmed by the elon musk call any kind of how do you view the last 24 48 hours worth of news just more the same i guess yeah look at i think it's just been a twilight zone because i'd say about 80 percent of the sell-off that we're seeing in tesla is twitter driven i mean and it would be a step in the right direction, clearly, for Musk to give up the reins as CEO of Twitter. But look, this is a $44 billion nightmare that you know, just continues to increase. I think it's a black eye for Musk, a black eye for Tesla. Mandeep, talk to us a little bit about this now private business here. Is there any sort of recovery? I think the last time we had you on, I want to say last week, you said that if this was a publicly traded stock, uh, still, Twitter would be worth less than $10 a share, which... Incredible. And again, Elon bought it for fifty-four twenty. Yeah. And I think he's still looking for new investors, by the way, who who are still looking at the same amount. But Mandeep, is there any sort of scenario here where Twitter's valuation is re-upped? Well, so clearly now he's talking about a management change and bringing in someone else other than him to run the company. And I think uh, it will be positive depending on who he gets. Look, if you get somebody like Sheryl Sandberg, that's a big, you know, uh, moment for the company, even if this thing takes a long time to turn around. But I, I think somebody with credentials is going to make uh, a big deal in terms of, you know, what could happen to Twitter going forward. But uh, we know right now the company is uh, bleeding advertisers. The employee morale is low. It's struggling with regulators. So clearly a lot is going wrong with the company right now. But, so you need somebody who can steady the ship, somebody who has good credentials. And I think that could make a difference here. So, Dan, you mentioned that, in your opinion, you know, maybe 80 percent of the decline in Tesla stock is, is, is due to Twitter. So one of the questions I have, and you've covered this company since its inception, can you give us a sense of is it really Elon Musk? How critical is Elon Musk to the day-to-day -day management of Tesla, to the strategic direction of Tesla? Is there a deep bench there? Is there a management team there? 
Look, Musk is the heart and lungs of the Tesla story. And I mean, you'd have to go back maybe to Jobs with Apple and Jack Welch GE for yep. any sort of comparisons. I mean, look, I think that's the issue is that his attention's really been focused more on Twitter. And the perception, perception's reality, is that Tesla needs him more than they ever have. And, and, and that's sort of the frustration here is that the Twitter spider web has just been a disaster for Tesla holders. And it's also viewed as taking attention from Musk, from his golden child Tesla, to what's really a quicksand situation when it comes to Twitter. And, and Dan, just do you have any sense, again, having followed this company since its inception, the board, is there any chance that this board can have any influence on this overall situation, specifically kind of dealing with Elon Musk? Look, I think ultimately Musk, you know, when he speaks, others listen in terms of, you know, the, the board situation. I mean, I think there could be, you know, definitely more pressure from the board. But at the end of the day, I mean, Musk continues to go to the beat of a different drum, and he's not really going to listen to anyone. I do think here the writing is in the wall. I feel like he did start to understand that he's not going to be able to turn around Twitter himself. To some extent, actually, it's made it worse, you know, since late October, and that's been part of the overhang on Tesla. Because with the biggest issue, Paul, is that he's using Tesla as his own personal ATM machine to fund Twitter. Yep. Well, what kind of upside does that then mean for Tesla shares specifically? If you say that this split attention is then reverted right back to to Tesla, what kind of stock performance could we expect? Well, I think then the whole story changes because they navigate the China headwinds. Even in a recession, I still think they could be close to 2 million vehicles sold in 2023. And then the transformation story, which is taking a major hiccup during this period, continues on. Then I think you could be looking you know, and what I believe is a stock that could be much higher from here. You know, $250 is our price target. But in the near term, I mean, this is the black cloud, uh, you know, over the Tesla store that needs to clear. And it's really self-inflicted from Musk that's going to go down still as, you know, we believe is probably the most overpaid tech acquisition in history. Mm. Mandeep, um, you know, I'm looking at, the, again, the news today is, you know, the poll that Elon put out and, his users voting that uh, he should step down. In reality, I mean, you know the business, you know the players here. I can't imagine someone with the chops of like a Sheryl Sandberg coming into this role given the ownership structure. How do you think this might maybe plays out from just a, a Twitter management, Twitter business perspective? Yeah, so look, I, I think Elon Musk is surrounded by a lot of people who know how to run this business. So I, I think he's going to get external help. The key question remains how much independence this new person can get in terms of running the company. And look, online advertising, even though it's a secular growth market, the growth seems to be slowing. So we're not talking about, you know, 20% plus growth anymore in online ads. This is more of, you know, low teens after we are you know through this cyclical downturn that's a kind of growth and it's getting competitive i mean you see likes of netflix and you know disney plus getting into online ads so twitter as a company to my mind is sort of mature stage you know user growth is uh, sort of slowing down ads we know they they're having issues and it's not easy to revive twitter and make it 
you know, a growth company again. And that's why I, I think the choices are narrow. But look, Elon Musk is surrounded by people who, who can run this company for sure. Well, what does that then mean in terms of things like the margin loans, for example? What is the likelihood that some of that debt can actually be exchanged and then, uh, I don't want to say advertised, but actually uh, gain interest for shareholders that aren't the biggest banks to actually grab them? What do you think? Yeah, so that that's where, you know, it's a good thing that the company is private and uh, right now they just have to manage the debt situation, make sure they pay off the interest and manage the margin loan situation. But they have that kind of balance sheet. And even though Musk may have to sell more stock, he can manage the situation. The question is, is there a viable business that he can, uh, you know, at some point IPO again and, and get out of this thing? But the way it's being run right now, clearly, uh, you know, it's in decline and uh, we're not even thinking about when Twitter may go public again. Mm. Dan, just stepping back from the, the Elon factor, what's the what's your call for Tesla as it relates to just competition with all the big auto manufacturers globally uh, in 2022 seeming to go all in on EVs? How do you think Tesla positions itself? Look, I think Tesla is in a position of strength, but no doubt the 313 area code is going to be a major beneficiary. You look what Mary is doing at GM and Farley at Ford. They are going to benefit significantly, as well as others from BW, Mercedes, and, and everyone else, because this is not a zero-sum game, and you're really getting into what could be an inflection year for EVs in 2023. But right now, in terms of what's happening with Musk, there's been popping of the champagne in Detroit as they watch this <laughs> because it's the best that ever happened. All right, great stuff. We appreciate getting the the updates seems like on this never uh, ending story. Dan Ives, he's a senior analyst uh, covering all things technology for Wedbush Securities. And again, just to put it in context, Dan's been a, a super supporter of uh, you know the electric vehicle business and Tesla from the beginning. He's done such a great job educating Wall Street uh, and his investing clients about you know, this whole new business. Uh, but now, obviously, shareholders of, of Tesla and supporters of the stock have to deal with uh, kind of this issue with Elon Musk and the ownership of uh, Twitter and the impact it's having on Tesla. So tough time for those shareholders. Uh, Mandeep Singh covers all things technology for Bloomberg Intelligence. He joins us as well. So we'd like to get those two folks together, create just to give us a sense of this, the business of Twitter, the business of Tesla, as they both try to negotiate ownership by Elon Musk. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. about the rest of you, but I'm putting 2022 in the rear view. I'm looking forward to 2023. It's got to be better, right? Uh, let's check in with some people who kind of do this stuff for a living. Gina Martin-Adams, Chief Equity Analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence, and Cameron Kreis, Macro Strategist uh, with Bloomberg News. So, Gina, let's start with you here. My 60-40 portfolio got slammed around all year. Equities down, bonds down. How should I, what should my expectations be for 2023? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a great question, certainly, and something everyone's thinking about at this point in time. Uh, you know, our expectations are 
the equity market side of the equation anyway will be a touch better, but maybe not back to the double-digit average annual gains that we became accustomed to in the in the last cycle. So our expectation is a little bit more moderate for the next cycle. We see the likelihood for higher for longer interest rates, higher for longer inflation, pressuring valuations and earnings growth alike. So our average annual return expectation for the next three years is somewhere between five and seven percent, as opposed to the eleven percent average annual growth that you were, that you got out of stocks following the great financial crisis. Well, Cameron, hop on in here. You wrote a a column today, and I love the title of your your Macroman column, saying it's kind of funny how no one wants crash protection. Talk to us a little bit about the hedging picture. Are people just going into 2023 cold? Uh, I wouldn't say that. Uh, I mean, there are a number of uh, sort of peculiarities of the the option market. Um, One is that there's a, a very large trade that happens every quarter. Uh, uh, where the, uh, the institution involved buys a slightly out of the money uh, put on the S and P and sells a, a put that's quite a bit further out of the money, and that that uh, probably with some other flow dynamics may have reduced the relative vol premium that people put on very low delta options. Um, and the other thing is that quite unusually, the average winning day in 2022 has been a lot bigger than the average losing day. I mean, you normally think about the equity market sort of riding the escalator up and then falling down the elevator shaft, but it's, it's been quite, quite contrary um, this year, where the average winning day is about 20 basis points bigger than the average, uh, than the average losing day, which suggests that, uh, you know, we, we are not experiencing the sort of discontinuous moves that would, that would to the downside that would normally lead, lead people to sort of really scramble for crash protection. Hey, Gina, one of the risks out there, at least in my mind, is still maybe some earnings risk. And I look at the Bloomberg terminal for the S&P 500, and I see for next year like 234 bucks, up about 5%. We had Doug Cass on from Seabreeze Partners early to, in, earlier on today. He said, no way. Think about 200 for earnings. What, how are you thinking about earnings in 23? Yeah, we also have an earnings decline baked into our model. Our fair value model says you get a small single-digit drop in earnings growth. I think the really interesting thing about this particular cycle is that most of the S&P 500 has already entered an earnings recession. When you exclude energy from the equation, the index earnings stream actually peaked all the way back at the end of 2021, and most sectors showed a decline in earnings throughout this year. So you've got a lot of moving parts to contend with going into 2023, Certainly, the energy sector will weigh heavily on the earnings stream for the S&P 500 going into 2023 because we've seen some deterioration in oil prices over the second half of this year and the really strong sort of operating margin expansion that these companies enjoyed in 2022 will fade into 2023. That will likely be the biggest drag. But on the other end of the spectrum, financials have already been in a pretty significant earnings recession this year. That should ease in 2023 as long as we move past this um, most negative point of spread in the yield curve occurring currently. As long as the yield curve becomes slightly less negative uh, in spread, we should see better earnings growth for the financial sector. Consumer sectors also have been heavily, have experienced this heavy weight of compressing operating margins because of high input costs. That should ease into 2023 as well. So I think the story for 2023 on the earnings on the earnings stream is really just a lot of moving parts. Overall, certainly a decline 
But our work would suggest this looks nothing like the 2008-2009 earnings recession or the 2001 earnings recession. It's a really unique experience, mostly because of the fact that we're only two years out of the pandemic recession, and we're still contending with a lot of moving parts on the earnings stream. It's interesting that you say that, uh, Gina. Mike Wilson over at Morgan Stanley makes the exact opposite argument. He also says his advice, don't assume the market is pricing this kind of outcome until it actually happens, which, Cam, brings me to you. What exactly is the carnage of the stock market in 2022 pricing in? Uh, well, you could argue uh, it's priced in higher interest rates, but it has, you know, it has yet to price in. Uh, a significant deterioration in the in the economic environment. Um, you know, I, I think the the earnings prospects for next year are going to be pretty heavily uh, dependent not on what's happened in the past, but also what happens in the future. And and the fact is, is that while we did have two quarters of slightly negative growth in the first half of this year, that was largely a function of exports and the inventory adjustments rather than underlying domestic demand. If we see uh, a deterioration in underlying domestic demand, which does seem relatively reasonable, given that policy is going to get more restrictive over the course of the year, if we look at uh, the real Fed funds rate, uh, then it does seem uh, plausible to suggest that, that there could be some significant down moves in, in earnings relative to expectations still. And, and let's face it, if we, if we have S&P earnings of 200 bucks. Uh, and you slap a 15 or a 16 PE on that, you get, uh, you know, you get the S&P at 3,000 or 3,200, which is a whoa, long way whoa, from where whoa. we are now. That's no fun. I don't want well, to go we're there. We're not in the jo- we're not in the we're not in the job to be fun to have fun. If you, no f- I mean, you after- want to have fun on the job, you know. <laughs> <laughs> in 2022, I thought I took my my pain there. Gina, are there? I don't know. Are are there some sectors? I mean, if I want to go out on the risk curve in the equity space, are there some sectors I should be focusing on here, do you think? Yeah, I, I, you know, our work would suggest actually you start to wiggle your way into some of the early cycle sectors at this stage in the market. We run a fair value model for the S&P 500, and as of our October lows in the index, that would suggest we not only priced something close to 4.5% Fed funds, but we also priced a double-digit decline in earnings growth coming in the next year. So in my work would say that we've done, gone a long way to pricing that earnings recession, provided that the Fed does eventually stop raising interest rates. But there, is a, there are a lot of question marks in the outlook. Um, as I mentioned, I don't see to this as a 2009 scenario, mostly because financials, which is one of those early cycle sectors that I mentioned, the leverage scenario in financials doesn't look at all like 2008, 2009. We've got half the overall leverage in the public financial sector that we had at that point in time, despite the fact that the economy is a whole lot bigger. So. Financials to us looks like an area of opportunity, along with something like a consumer, some of the consumer names that have been inordinately beaten down over the course of this year, anticipating again that decline in demand coming into 2023. So I would say you start to leg in to some of the the cyclical cyclical space into 2023. There's no rush to do so because we do face negative estimate revision pressure for the index at large. But if you look at where the valuation opportunities are, they are in those early cyclical sectors. The bloated part of the market is still a problem. The bloated part of the market is that large cap growth space that became inordinately excessively valued in the pandemic. And we're still, you know, recovering from that uh, addiction we had to large cap growth. And that will probably continue to be a drag. 
that's too bad because man, I made my bread and butter in that space, like a lot of other people, uh, kind of playing on the uh, the big tech names and the big consumer cyclical kind of stuff. Stuff. So we'll have to see how that plays out. All right, Gina Martin items, uh, great stuff as always. Chief uh, Equity Analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence and Cameron Kreis, macro strategist uh, with the come down call of the morning. I mean, two hundred on S&P earnings, you put a 15, 16 multiple on that. That's a, some pretty decent downside for the S&P 500. C-suite conversation today. Today we're joined by John Cotterall, CEO of Endava. That is a London, uh, England-based company. The ADRs trade here on the New York Stock Exchange. Uh, D-A-V-A is your ticker. John, thanks so much for joining us here. Uh, technology company, IT services company. Tell us about what you guys are doing at Endava. Sure, and um, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Um, so Endava drives technology change for our customers. So we focus on the technology waves that are rolling through chosen industries that we focus on. Um, and develop the expertise to drive fundamental change for our customers. So things like autonomous vehicles and how that is affecting uh, mobility. Um, even today, business practices are adjusting um, using technology um, to you know, all of the change that's going to come as autonomous vehicles hit the market. And there are many different technologies across many industries where we're helping clients go through those adjustments. One of the big themes for, I would say, companies globally right now is that there is going to be a massive slowdown in 2023. We were just talking in our last segment about it really hitting the profits and the bottom line of a lot of these companies. Are you seeing the same for your business? Uh, so at the moment, our um, guidance looking forward is for um, good, solid growth. So uh, we've guided on a constant currency basis of between 23 and 24 percent for our fiscal year, which runs to the end of June. Um, and at the moment, we're seeing, you know, good, strong demand uh, supporting that. Um, so, um, you know, our rationale is that uh, clients are still investing in the areas of deep fundamental change um, that are, are, are driving step change shifts in their industries and feeling that they can't step back from it. Uh, there's maybe a little bit of um, review, you know, extra review around should we be spending the money, um, but largely we're seeing it come through. So, John, give us a sense of maybe who you, a typical customer of yours or what are some of the verticals that you guys really focus on and, and, and kind of what are what's your software do for those clients? Sure. Um, so we're, we're writing bespoke software for clients and using um, some of the technologies that are out there. Uh, I already touched on mobility. Another area is, is payments. So as you're seeing the shift to electronic payments and frictionless payments and different ways in which that can be done, real time and so on, uh, we're helping clients um, make that adjustment. Um, retail, as it's becoming more omni-channel and adopting some of those frictionless payments I was talking about. Uh, media, you see the shift to streaming and um, just coming over the horizon. You can see things like the metaverse coming through. Uh, AI and wearables are transforming access to personally relevant healthcare. Um, and then in insurance, you can see data transforming and uh, personalizing the sorts of products that clients want to put out in insurance. 
Of course, there's digital banking. The shift there continues to gather momentum. It's got a long way to run uh, and so on. It looks like you have a recently announced acquisition of a lexicon in Australia. Talk to us a little bit about that business. Sure. So, you know, one of our um, strategies uh, as a business is to diversify our footprint. Um, so we diversify across industries. We started in the financial services space um, and then we diversify um, geographically. So lexicon is uh uh, target that we settled on in Australia um, to really push what we're doing in the Asia-Pacific arena. Uh, and they work with clients in a similar way to the way that we do, uh, accelerating their digital transformation programs. Um, they've got employees in Australia and Vietnam, so very much fits our, uh, our model. John, how did your business evolve? How has it impacted over the last several years of this pandemic? Uh, we know that software generally held up as a, as a sector pretty darn well, but I'd be interested to kind of get your view. Yeah, so, I mean, we I started the business in uh, February 2000 in London. Whoa. We were initially <laughs> focused on the city of London. Um, and, you know, we've, we've built up, we IPO'd uh, in July 2018. Um, just over four years ago. Since then, we've trebled in size um, and improved our margins. So that took us through the, uh, the pandemic. Um, the pandemic was a, a very short, um, very slight pullback, maybe 2% right at the beginning of the pandemic where clients took a step back and went, my goodness, what's happening here? Um, but then very quickly settled into very strong acceleration. And when we hit peaks of 60% year-on-year growth uh, as clients were adopting technologies to uh, enable them to stay in touch with their clients in, in stay-at-home environments, et cetera, delivery being one of the big areas of growth part of our mobility space. Well, delivery, and I would argue the buy now, pay later types of models as well, it's interesting that you kind of talk about this evolution of technology. You mentioned the EV space, um, which is really interesting. It's something, of course, we pay attention to quite a bit at Bloomberg. But talk to us a little bit about the payment system. It almost feels like uh, that's an evolving business as well. Yeah, so payments has been one of our core areas of focus for the, over 20 years. Um, so initially working with the banks and then some of the payment providers that, that got separated out from the banks. Um, increasingly, we see payments as being something that we're taking to other industries um, as they're getting to grips with you know, how to provide a, a more um, seamless, frictionless type of service um, to clients. Um, retailers, for instance, they want to move to on omni-channel uh, in which they're integrating payment solution. They want to take a little bit more ownership of the buy mail pay later type solutions uh, enables them to keep their hands on the customer data and not see it go down the um, chain into their payments providers. Um, so actually, you know, our, the experience we have in other industries is becoming part of the value add that our clients see in us, um, bringing that payments experience or in other spaces, for instance, um, insurance type services might move from being insure a car uh, to actually ensure a journey. Um, and, you know, that, that 
requires a radical rethink of how you build your products and how you relate to the insurance industry. And Indava helps clients to bridge that gap. All right, John. Great stuff. Appreciate getting a few minutes of your time there, John Cotterall. He's CEO of Indava. Uh, that is a New York Stock Exchange listed stock. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Let's switch over and talk global energy. We've got WTI crude oil here pretty much unchanged on the day, $74.31 a barrel. Uh, Brent crude just under $80 per barrel. You know, you got to think about, or when you think about global energy, you got to think about supply and demand, and demand, a big variable is always China. And I think China is opening up. I don't know. I guess we'll believe it when we see it. Fernando, I think it is. Fernando Valley, he's a senior analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence Cover the global uh, energy space for Bloomberg Intelligence. So, Fernando, it appears like you might have some movement in your demand models coming from China. How do you guys think about it? Oh, Paul, you're, you're right. Uh, but I think it's actually down first and then up, uh, just because similar to us, uh, when you reopen at this space, especially with more contagious uh, vari- uh, variants, uh, you have faster transmission and then more sickness and people avoid contact altogether and you're starting to see that in large cities in china um but then as you said uh as people build natural immunity and they start to readjust to the to the new normal as it were uh then we expect an increase in, in, in consumption um if we go back to 2021 levels that could mean as much as 600 to 700,000 barrels a day of additional imports to china the big question then becomes, how is, does their economy rebound? Remember, this is a country that has very high leverage levels, uh, particularly in their real estate segment that accounts for as much as 30% of GDP. Fernando, when we're looking at the actual market itself, it looks like open interest in crude contracts has just completely collapsed. How much of the drop in crude, we're looking at 74, hand, uh, 74 handle on NYMEX, how much of that is due to perhaps a lack of faith in economic growth as opposed to simply people pulling out of these positions? I think you, you, you hit the nail on the head. I think the, the, the lack of trust in, in economic activity led to traders not wanting to be exposed to this market, and they decided to, to retreat in their positions. Um, the volatility has clearly been an issue as well. We've had a lot of volatility over the past uh, three months with the news of uh, will we have a recession, will the Fed pivot, uh, will China reopen, will COVID zero become a, a, a the de facto rule in China? And as we've approached the, the year end as well, traders are trying to lock in gains from uh, the, the everything that we've seen over the, the much higher prices earlier this year. And I think all of that led to a, a drop in liquidity um, ahead as well of uh, governments trying to refill their their reserves. So the U.S. government is, as I see the reporting, starting to refill its reserves. How does that play out? I don't really remember how this works. 
Well, technically, they will buy uh, crude in either open market or, or forward contracts. Uh, currently, we've only seen them uh, being out in the market for about 3 million barrels, which is a drop in the bucket. Uh, we've released well over 180 million barrels uh, since uh, the, the middle of this year. So it'll take some time for that to um, lead to a, re a recovery in the strategic petroleum reserve levels. We're well below the 10-year averages for, for the, the SPR, um, and it will take some time. And in, in, in all likelihood, they'll space that out uh, so that there isn't a huge surge in oil prices. You know, they try to do it all at once, it would certainly lead to an impact on WTI prices. Well, Fernando, talk to us about the broader energy picture. Of course, we have some headlines coming out of the EU this morning. They're agreeing to cap gas prices at 180 euros temporarily uh, just to ease the sky-high prices there. Is there a knock-on effect into the other parts of the energy market? Um, I think with the EU cap specifically, there are a lot of caveats uh, that to, to it actually being enacted. Uh, the prices have to be above those levels for two weeks and then uh, they have to be above an LNG benchmark for 10 days actually on top of that in order for that price cap to really play out. So it remains to be seen whether that that, that cap will actually come into effect. Um, and if you think about how the energy system is set up in Europe with renewables, uh, hopefully every two weeks that we would have a change and, and get some uh, new generations we saw with the UK now uh, producing more wind over the past two past week than they had in the previous two. So I don't think there will be a huge knock-on effect. If it actually did come into fruition, it might actually spark uh, more, uh, less competition in Asia and cheaper prices for LNG because the EU is essentially pricing itself out. And we're seeing places like Pakistan and India struggling to get some of the supplies uh, that they were uh, hoping for because the EU has drained so much of the LNG market. So how about on the supply side here? Give us a, just an update of where... U.S. production is here. Where are we vis-a-vis -vis capacity? Do you expect us, the, the U.S. producers, to, to ramp up at all if they can? How's the supply look from the U.S.? Uh, it looks sluggish, to say the least. It, we're still uh, hovering around the low 12 million barrel a day levels. Um, remember, we peaked at 13.3. Uh, and there's a combination of issues there. One, as we've said before, Paul, uh, the, the, the inventories the, of wells, they're not just not the same quality as they used to be. So the productivity for a while is not as good as it was uh, in prior years. And the second part is just the shortages that we're seeing across the supply chain aren't really resolved. The costs have risen significantly from steel to sand to labor, and it's difficult for them to make a, make a return, especially a $74 WTI. Fernando, talk to us a little bit about the SPR release and the Biden administration's bid. I believe there was a headline a couple of days ago that in February they were going to start looking for bids to buy oil and replenish the SPR. It's, I think, correct me if I'm wrong. I think it was like either 62 or 68 or something that the, which is the price that the Biden administration would yes. look to buy into. Talk to us a little bit about the effect of that on the market. Well, that can have a significant impact, especially when you look at the spread between Brent and WTI, which has right. been a support for uh, for U.S. refiners. They, they especially the ones uh, that are landlocked, they tend to make that spread uh, between uh, Brent and WTI that helps their margins. So that would be negative for those for that group. Um, but 62 to 68, I mean, they're probably looking at the forward curve, and uh, it's just not going to be realistic when you actually come into a spot market. 
and you're trying to make the strange actions work, especially at that volume. You know, if we're talking about 150 million barrels of uh, to refill back to the levels or more, uh, they would they would shift that curve very quickly uh, if they don't space it out over the course of several several months, if not a couple a couple of years. Fernando, 30 seconds here, just for clarification. Did you say that the refining spread would then be negative if the Biden administration um, hopped into the market? Uh, no, the spread between Brent and WTI. Ah, so I WTI see. is five dollars cheaper than Brent, right, and right, right. Uh, gasoline and diesel are priced off of Brent. Gotcha. All right, good stuff. Fernando Valley, he covers uh, the global energy space for Bloomberg Intelligence here. Looking at the INGO function, pretty on the Bloomberg terminal gives you all the uh, uh, the returns. Uh, Bloomberg Index browser. I'm looking at the Bloomberg uh, U.S. Aggregate Total Value. Uh, index for the credit for the fixed income stuff down about 11.1 percent that's bad but it was actually a lot worse a few months ago the, you know bonds have been rallying a little bit here and uh, i want to get a sense of kind of what's going on out there so we turn to liz mccormick chief correspondent global macro markets for bloomberg news i think she's down in our dc studio which is pretty cool liz thanks so much for joining us here you know, it seems like, you know, it's it's not as bad as it was earlier in the year for the fixed income space. What are you seeing? Yeah, it's amazing. And I am in our lovely D.C. office here. Um, but yeah, you know, our folks in the corporate finance team wrote a nice story. And I, I tell you, you see it everywhere from either the credit or the sovereign folks. It's like they said, the, the outlooks are all about, oh, the year of the bond, the comeback of the bond. And it's like you just laid out how brutal the year has been with returns. But the flip side of that is it's brought yields higher, right? And people are saying, oh, well, maybe we're at peak inflation, you know, maybe stressing. Uh, Maybe, you know, even though the Fed said it's going to stay at high rates for a long time, you know, maybe at least the uptick is going to stop soon. And maybe it's a time to lean back into the fixed income side. So like you said, uh, there's folks like Vanguard and others saying, you know, investment grade credit looks good. And, you know, maybe it's the time to dip back in. And even some on the sovereign sides, like, you know, treasuries and, you know, global sovereigns. Liz, there is a fun fact that Ira Jersey said to me last week, and I've been saying, I think this is like the fourth time on the show that I've said it today, <laughs> but he essentially argues that the idea of Fed cuts being priced in the market is capping uh, yields, especially on the front end of the curve for the two-year yield. Is there a possibility here that rate cuts, or at least the possibility of them next year, get pushed out of the curve? And how quickly could you see some sort of shock to the front end of the curve if that happens? Well, I have to say, and not have to say, but I do agree with Ira that, um, you know, those cuts being priced in are helping, right? Especially helping flatten the curve. But, I mean, we we saw Bill Dudley write on our opinion page today that kind of the market may need to listen to the Fed. And uh, Jerome Powell couldn't have been more clear that, like, hey, we're not even thinking about cutting yet. So I I think there is a lot of risk, despite everyone saying the year of the bond, which sometimes when everyone's saying the same same thing, it almost makes you nervous, right? There's a, you know, risk that things go the other way. But I think you're right there. There's about 50 basis points of cuts priced in by the end of 2023. And if, you know, we go meeting by meeting by meeting and the Fed keeps leaving it there and signaling, you know, no cuts to the next year, the market will eventually come in line. And I think you're right. You know, that that means maybe then the two-year yield has more room to go upside. So there are some firms, like you've probably seen BlackRock is warning, like "Mm, sovereign debt, you know, there's a lot of risks. Inflation could be sticky and the Fed stays high long. And and, in that world, like you said, Creedy, two-year yields could go higher. 
And Liz, I mean, a lot of folks obviously talking about a recession in 2023. Are we seeing any signs of that concern and maybe the high yield market at all, maybe some of the lower end? Well, I, I do hear from folks and you see in their reports and, and this, you know, nice story today is talking about, you know, when, when things get bad and you have a recession, it's, you know, defaults you're worried about and some high yield risks. So I think, you know, a lot of them leaning into the market are saying be selective into the debt markets. Let's go with the safer, you know, like the investment grade, which investment grade like treasuries got really walloped the most because a lot of the bond yield, as we've known for the last year, the pain in the bond market has been just pure, call it duration risk. Fed just jamming up rates by over 400 basis points, push yields, and, you know, not to get too wonky, but you're getting more of a pure rate play in investment-grade credit and, of course, in sovereigns because it's not, you know, there's not as much risk of defaults, but high yields and things like that. Um, you know, I was listening on uh, the radio for, with you guys this morning. I forget who was chatting with him, but Dennis Gartman was on, and he was pretty negative on things, saying, you know, recession coming, Fed to stay high. And that's when you you worry is there going to start to be more defaults and, you know, these lesser-grade companies not doing well or having trouble rolling over debt now that yields are higher. It's interesting that you mentioned defaults because it almost feels like at the moment uh, the consensus here is that if there is a shallow recession, the risk of fallen angels, for example, is very, very low. But Liz, let's talk a little bit about bond volatility here, because if you look at the move index, you are starting to see it kind of stagnate a little bit when it comes to volatility. It's extremely high, and it's kind of staying at those high levels. But why, if the Federal Reserve has been nothing but clear about their strategy moving forward? Well, th- that I will admit is a bit of a head scratcher because you, you know, there's been a few Fed meetings that I, you know, we kind of said, oh, Jerome Powell maybe had a little trouble with communication. This time he seemed to have his notes in line. And uh, you're right, volatility has come off, but it's still historically high. And I think kind of getting to what Paul was asking is that, you know, even though people are saying, hey, maybe the debt markets will do better next year, maybe inflation is peaked, there's a lot of maybes, right? Uh, so I think there's enough risk out there um, that people aren't, you know, there is some volatility selling, you you know, here, here you know, that going on, but not in screaming because, the I don't know, it's just, especially if you've had such bad losses, you've got to be careful, I think. And so people, you do still hear people saying, I'm holding powder dry, keeping cash. Um, and I, I just don't think people are going to think bond volatility is over until we kind of see the whites of the eyes, you know, whatever that number is, uh, CPI gets down to 4%, that re- people really trust that inflation is in this falling trend. And we still, just looking at the twos and tens, Liz, um, still about 65 basis points of inversion there. Um, how are people thinking about an inverted yield curve? I'm just an equity guy, but I've been told if you get an inverted yield curve, that means a recession. But we've been in inverted for a long time, it seems like. Yeah, we've been inverted for a long time. Um but, you know, like um, Campbell Harvey would say, who's now a Duke, Duke. who's the one who, who oh, really who found that, you know, that relationship between the shape of the curve and recessions. And he always reminds me, Liz, it has never failed me, you know, <laughs> and, you know, I'm like, I know, I know. So we've had like he likes to look at the three month tenure and that's inverted for a while now, too. So. 
I would have to lean with him and say I'm hard-pressed to think it's going to be like this time is different. We don't get a recession. Of course, I don't know if it's mild or strong. His thesis doesn't get to that. But um, I do think, you know, the yield curve has been inverted for a long time. And, you know, you hear people saying, you've probably talked about it, you know, we could see two cents go to minus 100 basis points. Yep. You know, we only, you know, we were at minus 85 on the inversion a bit ago. So maybe it runs further and it takes longer, but it's, it has a pretty good track record of foreshadowing a, a economic downturn. All right. Great stuff, as always, Liz. Really appreciate getting some of your time. Liz McCormick, she's the chief correspondent covering global macro markets for Bloomberg News, uh, reporting from our uh, Washington, D.C. studios, uh, which are pretty awesome down there in the nation's capital. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.